Tulsi Maharani Ki Jai, Samaveta Bhaktivinoda Ki Jai, Gaur Premananda. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Sri Prabhupada. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prastaya Bhutale. Shrimate Bhaktivedanta Swami Niti Namana. Namaste Saraswati Deve Gauravani Pacharane. Nirvase Sisanyavadi Paskatade Satarane. Vande Ham Sri Guru Sri Yuta Padakamalam Sri Guru Vaishnavamscha. Sri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raganatam Vitam Sam Sajivam. Sadvaitam Sadvadutam Padijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam. Sri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Sri Vishakam Vitamscha. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya so it's June 14, 2019, in Brooklyn, New York, and we're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 1, Chapter 9, The Passing Away of Bhishma Dave, Text 9. Tansametam Mahabhagan Upalabhya Vasutama Pujayam Asadharmagno Deshakala Bivagavit Please chant. Tan. All of them. Sametan, assembled together, Mahabhagan, all greatly powerful, Upalabhya, having received, Vasu Uttamaha, the best among the Vasus, Bhijmadeva, Pujayam Asa, welcomed, Dharmagna, one who knows religious principles. Desha, place, Kala, time, Vibhagavit, one who knows the adjustment of place and time. Rupalpat's translation in purport. Bhishma Deva, who was the best among the eight Vasus, received and welcomed all the great and powerful Rishis who were assembled there, for he knew perfectly all the religious principles according to time and place. Purport. Expert religionists know perfectly well how to adjust religious principles in terms of time and place. All the great acharyas or religious preachers or reformers of the world executed their mission by adjustment of religious principles in terms of time and place. There are different climates and situations in different parts of the world. And if one has to discharge his duties to preach the message of the Lord, he must be expert in adjusting things in terms of the time and place. Bhishma Deva was one of the twelve great authorities in preaching this cult of devotional service, and therefore he could receive and welcome all the powerful sages assembled there at his deathbed from all parts of the universe. He was certainly unable at that time to welcome and receive them physically, because he was neither at his home nor in a normal healthy condition. 
but he was quite fit by the activities of his sound mind, and therefore he could utter sweet words with hearty expressions, and all of them were well received. One can perform one's duty by physical work, by mind, and by words, and he knew well how to utilize them in the proper place, and therefore there was no difficulty for him to receive them, although physically unfit. Tan same tam mahabhagam upalabhya vasuttama pujayam asadharmagno deshakala vivagavit. Bhijmadev, who was the best among the eight vasus, received and welcomed all the great and powerful rishis who were assembled there, for he knew perfectly all the religious principles according to time and place. So, what to do, when and how and where and with whom? This is our main question in life on a practical day-to-day basis. What should I do? What's the best thing to do? What's going to give me a good result? What's going to give me a mix? What's going to give me a bad result? And Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that those who are in sattva they know what to do and what not to do, what's to be feared, what's not to be feared, what is binding and what is liberating. Wouldn't that nice if we always knew what to do and what not to do? Right. Even in little things. How oh, okay. Should I go to the Brooklyn Temple or the Bhakti Center? Right. Should I go to the Connecticut Rathiatra or should I stay here? And then the big things. Should I get married or not? If I get married, who should I marry? This one, that one? Should I have kids or not? How many? Where should I live? What career should I have? Right? But even like, should I get dressed this morning? What should I wear? I mean, so many different... What should I eat? How much? What should I say? Should I say this? Should I not say this? Right the other day, I was thinking of writing to someone. Should I write to them? Should I not write to them? What should I say? What should I not say? And people in general are thinking like this in terms of their own happiness, but I'm hoping all of us here are also thinking of that in terms of... Right, you were talking about, will it please Prabhupada? Will Prabhupada be happy with me? Will Krishna be happy with me? And Prabhupada says, the residents of Vrindavan, they're just thinking, how do we make Krishna smile? They're not thinking of anything else. So, here in this particular verse, we have an indication of that there are eternal religious principles and there are religious principles applied according to time and place. Of course, sometimes we say, Patra, that time, place, and circumstance. Here, Prabhupada's mentioned several times in the purport, time and place. So, I'm... The, the chair of the Shastric Advisory Council will be working for a few years on a project for the GBC called hermeneutics, which basically means how do we understand the meaning of the statements from Prabhupada, the Acharyas, and the Shastra. And one of the main things that we've come up with, we've done a lot of research into traditional Vedic hermeneutics, as well as it's also a Western discipline. And the essential principle is you look with everything that you hear from Guru, Sadhu, and Shastra, the first questions you ask are about yourself. What's my state of consciousness? Is my sadhana good? What are my motives? What are my biases? What's my present state? What's my present emotional state? What's my present circumstance? Am I willing to be open to what's right, or do I have already some preconceived notions? Right, Madhavananda was talking about Jalpa, Vitanga, and Vada, the different motives for conversation, the different moods of conversation. 
after looking at ourself, then we're looking at, okay, is there some direction for what I want to do here? And is this direction an eternal, non-contextual principle? Is this statement from Guru Sadhu Shastra, is it a statement that has no relation to time and place? It's true for everyone in all times, in all places, and therefore I can always, in any time and place, use this statement from Guru Sadhu Shastra as a guide. Now, any idea what percentage of the statements in the Shastra from the Acharyas and the Guru would apply to everyone in all circumstances, at all times, in all places? How, what what portion are we looking at? Any just ten percent? Maybe ten. Okay. Anybody else? It's definitely small, isn't it? It's not a big percentage. Then we have eternal principles, but they're applied according to time, place, and circumstance. They're an eternal principle. The principle underlying the statement is true for everybody all the time, in all places, in all circumstances. But the statement itself is an application of an eternal truth, an application of a non-contextual truth. It's a contextual application of a non-contextual truth. Everybody follow that? You're taking something without context of time, place, and and anything, but you're applying it in a particular Then you have other things which are not statements of non-contextual truth at all. They're completely contextual. They support non-contextual truth, but they are not in and of themselves statements of non-contextual truth. They're something supportive. They're something helpful. So we're going to look at those three. And then there are other statements which go in other categories, like the philosophy of Buddha for example, but we're not going to look at that today. So let's look at what are the non-contextual truths. And it's interesting, of course, in the four verses of the Bhagavatam, the last verse says that one should be inquisitive, one should be following this eternal truth in all places, at all times, all circumstances, which is indicative that there is such a truth that is beyond any context. There's a truth that's always true for everybody at all times and all places. So what are some statements of that truth? Anybody want to? Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam. Well, that's interesting that you brought that up. Do the residents of Vaikuntha accept that? No. So that's interesting. Something to think about. Okay. All right. The jivas are fragmental, eternal fragmental parts of the Lord. Yes? Well, that's applicable here. Is that applicable everywhere? The relationship between the jiva and God is that of servant and master. The essential relationship. Okay. I'm sorry, did you think you were just going to be entertained this morning? Aham Yes, we have the, the four verses, four key verses of the Bhagavad Gita. 
That's chapter 10, text 8, 9, 10, and 11. We have the four essential verses of the Bhagavatam also. Now we have in our particular line, Bhaktivinoda Thakur wrote a statement of non-contextual truths. And this is called the Dasmula Tattva. Now his uh, Dasmula Tattva is based on very similar work done by Baladeva Vijabhushana, which is very significant because Baladeva Vijabhushana established the Gaudiya Sampradaya, although coming from the Madhva Sampradaya, as a very distinct branch. And Baladeva Vijabhushana based his writing of the essential non-contextual truths on work of Madhvacharya himself. So actually a direct follower of Madhvacharya Vyastirta. So the Das Mula Tattva is, is very significant because it gives us a concise statement of non-contextual truth connecting to Baladeva Vijibhushan and to Madhvacharya. So it establishes our, the truths understood by our Sampradaya. So it is, uh, Banaswami has translated the Das Mula Tattva along with Bhaktivinoda's commentaries on Das Mula Tattva. It's widely available there's also another translation, I'm not sure by whom, in the database. But I just want to read the ten points, not go into the commentary on them. Number one, the Vedas are the principal scriptural evidence, which in turn expounds the following nine principles. So the first non-contextual truth is that our means for understanding truth is Shastra. Then Krishna is the supreme absolute truth. So then you come to Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam. Krishna is omnipotent. He is the fountainhead of all relationships and love. The living entities are his separated parts and parcels, which you brought up. The living entity, due to his constitutional situation as the marginal energy, may come under the sway of the material energy, which relates to your point. Again, due to his marginal nature, the living entity in the liberated condition is free of the influence of material nature. The living entity and everything in this material cosmos is simultaneously one and different from the Supreme Lord Krishna. Pure devotional service is the living entity's occupation and means. Pure love of Krishna is the living entity's ultimate goal. So this is what Bhaktivinoda delineated as ten truths that are true regardless of time, place, and circumstance. You know, when Jesus was asked for the essence of truth, what did he say? Yes. And, and the next one, and he said, and the second, which is like the first, is to love your, love your neighbor as yourself. Yes. So he, he delineated ultimate non-contextual truth as you should love God with all your heart, your soul, and your might, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Many years ago at Arathiyatra, I met one Catholic woman, and I said, how do you define neighbor? Do you define neighbor as only other humans or only other people with the same degree of melanin in your skin or only people from your same ethnic background or, you know, only other Catholics or something like that. You know, so we understand neighbor is everyone. Right? So these are some statements of ultimate truth. Yes, I, I, yesterday I met with an old childhood friend in, uh, in Manhattan and she was talking about how one famous Jewish Rabbi Hillel was asked, can you recite the whole Bible standing on one leg? And he said something very similar to what Jesus said later. Uh, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love everybody as you love yourself. So, of course, this principle we call the golden rule is given in every culture and every scripture of the world, isn't it? Right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love others as you love yourself. Uh, So these are some non-contextual truths. And what's interesting about having non-contextual truths is it means they are always applicable. If If we make a decision based on them, we are always right. We, we cannot possibly be wrong because those things are always true. So if my mood is, I'm a soul, I'm part of Krishna, there's a Supreme Lord, my duty is to serve him with love, what loving duty could I do right now? How could I do something that's a, that's a service for him and that's in love. Just even asking that question will immediately put us on the right track. Does that make sense to everybody? Now the details of how I would do that are going to be contextual. But to have that as my motive. What is the most loving action? What is the most loving thought? What is the most loving speech I can do in this circumstance? that would fulfill my identity as a spiritual being who's part and parcel of God, the Supreme Spirit. Then we look at, at textual, contextual application. Now, here, thing of, here things, of course, get very difficult. Because the way non-contextual truth is applied in different contexts can be widely different. So a first thing to think about is just the Yuga Dharma. We talk about different Yuga Dharmas. Yes, what are the different Yuga Dharmas? Meditation and Sattva Yuga. Yes. Sacrifice, Treta, Archana, Bhara, Nam. And the Kali Yuga. Of course, we do everything. We meditate. Prabhupada says our job is meditation, and of course our Gayatri is meditation. We have sacrifices. In fact, Sankirtan is a sacrifice. We worship the deity. We chant the holy name. But it's interesting in the story of Maharaj Bharat, before his birth as a deer, Prabhupada was explaining how the mantras in different ages were different. Of course, they're all chanting the pranava omkara. The exact way of doing the yagyas were different. So even when we're talking about essential principles of religion, transcendent religion, how you practice transcendent religion was different on different yugas, and I'm sure it's different on different planets. I mean, here Bhishma is welcoming people from different planets. We have enough hard time in our Hare Krishna movement, our international society, taking care of people from different parts of this planet at this time, don't we? I mean, I I travel all over the world and different cultures are different. They're just not the same. The way you receive somebody from Australia and the way you receive somebody from Indonesia are not the same. People behave quite differently. And I'm sure in different planets, the way they do puja is not quite the same. I'm sure they don't have our puja manual that they're following, you know, in Tapaloka. Where is that Iskand puja manual? 
So their sacrifices are different. Prabhupada explains there's more volumes of the Bhagavatam there. And so there's going to be different applications, even of eternal principles. Yes? So I thought I would read a couple things in this respect. So this is from Canto 1, Chapter 5, Text 16, Purport where Prabhupada says, the expert devotees also can discover novel ways and means to convert the non-devotees in terms of particular time and circumstance. Devotional service is dynamic activity and the expert devotees can find out competent means to inject it into the dull brains of the materialistic population. So there Prabhupada's talking about taking non-contextual principles and adapting them for the particular circumstance. Right? And I just, it was, it was so nice that uh, I just happened to be reading this in Chaitanya Church and read to the other day, and I'm like, oh, this is perfect for this verse. This is Mahaprabhu speaking to Sanatana Goswami. This is the end of his instructions, so this is Majjha 25, 121, where he says, as far as religious principles are concerned, there is a consideration of the person, the country, the time, and the circumstance. In devotional service, however, there is no such consideration Devotional service is transcendental to all such considerations. Prabhupada's purport. When we are on the material platform, there are different types of religion, Hinduism, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, and so on. These are instituted for a particular time, a particular country, or a particular person. Consequently, there are differences. So these are the differences of how eternal principles are taught to particular people at particular times. But the principles themselves are not subject to time, place, and circumstance. Right? And Prabhupada goes here in the, uh, in the purport, the devotional activities of the Krishna consciousness movement are completely transcendental to material considerations. As far as different faiths are concerned, religions may be of different types, but on the spiritual platform, everyone has an equal right to execute devotional service. That is the platform of oneness and the basis for a classless society. So the eternal religious principles apply according to different circumstances. And I also uh, have a quote from Majjha 2372 about Krishna himself, that Krishna knows how to deal according to time, person, and country. And we find Krishna appears in so many different incarnations, right? And in each incarnation, he's preaching according to that time, person, and country. I'm sure we've all met the Christians who like to quote where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father but through me. And why don't they think that he's talking to particular people at a particular place? You know, if you want to see a particular person and they have a secretary standing there, they might say, you know, nobody talks to the mayor without going through me. Does that mean nobody ever talks to the mayor without going through that secretary? And I always say to the Christians who say that, I say, well, you're telling me about Jesus. Aren't I going through you? Do you have a minister or a priest? Do you go through them? I said, and actually, we don't have anything that Jesus wrote personally. You're going through Matthew and John. I said, why can't I go to Jesus through my spiritual master? No, I'm accepting Jesus. Who's approaching Jesus directly? But they don't think that he's preaching according to some particular... Circumstance. And now, Adi 738, 
It says, it is a principle that in the purport, it is a principle that a preacher must strictly follow the rules and regulations laid down in Shastra, yet at the same time devise a means by which the preaching work to reclaim the fallen may go on with full force. And then a lecture Prabhupada gave in 73 to Bhagavatam 1210. He said, we have to adopt Desh Kalapatra, but we are keeping our principles as it is, but making arrangements according to the circumstances. That is required. So Prabhupada's saying it's required. It must be that we adapt eternal, non-contextual principles to a particular context. That requires some expertise. It does require some expertise. And that is constantly changing. Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasvati talked about that you cannot approach God with any mechanical process. So the opposite of mechanical is living. Yes? The opposite of mechanical is living. So how do we define life? Well, we would say life has an ongoing identity, an unchanging identity, but it's constantly adapting to its surroundings. If we're not constantly adapting to our surroundings, we will die. And if we don't have a continuing sense of identity, then we're not alive. So you can think of, in terms of our own individual life, spirituality is some continual truth that's always adapting in its manifestation according to the circumstances. And such is true for our movement as well. So I give a a three-hour seminar called Relevant and Relatable ISKCON. And we start out, in the first hour, we put a lot of emphasis on this point. That our movement has to retain its core identity, or it ceases to be what it is. If it changes its core identity, it's something else. But it also has to keep adapting to the circumstances in which it finds itself. Or it will also die. That both things are required. So hopefully we all agree about the non-contextual principles. But we definitely will never all agree on the contextual application. And part of the fact that we will not all agree about the contextual application is indicative, Srila Prabhupada will say many times, with part of our non-contextual truth, that we are all individuals. And individuals means we have different opinions and different tastes. What is the meaning of individuality? There's one Godia leader who used to be a member of ISKCON and has started his own organization. And I was talking to him at one time about how do you define personality? And he said, well, you know, we're like in separate places. I said, you can't define personality just with geography. Especially in the ultimate reality, there's not time and space as we think about it. But personality means we have different opinions. We have different tastes. In the spiritual world, it's described that Krishna is serving the devotees there, prasadam, according to what they like to eat. And Mahaprabhu would serve his devotees according to what they like to eat. I remember once after a festival looking at one devotee and saying, This prasadam is wonderful. She said, All prasadam is wonderful. Okay. Remind me not to glorify the prasadam around you. But, you know, we, we have different tastes. We like different colors. We like different fragrances. We like different kinds of food. Like I go to Russia and the, the restaurant in Moscow, they serve whole buckwheat groats every day. 
I can't stand the smell of whole buckwheat crust. But people there are piling it on their plate. You know, or, or you go to South India and you say, please, nothing spicy. And so they give you something. They said, oh, this is not spicy. And you really go, oh. They say, no, no, it's, it's, this is just planned. You know? We have different tastes. We like different kinds of music. Isn't it? Yes? So we have different opinions and different tastes in how to satisfy Krishna also. Prabhupada compares it to different political parties. I mean, obviously there are some politicians that couldn't care less about serving the country. That's another thing. But if we take politicians who genuinely care about serving the country, can we all at least assume that there are such entities? Take that as an assumption, that we have politicians who genuinely care about the good of the country. Somewhere. Somewhere. Somewhere, some of them. But they're going to disagree about how to do it, and sometimes they're going to have diametrically opposed opinions about how to do it. Isn't it? Have more rules about this. Have less rules about this. And they both care about pleasing the country. But that's true with Krishna too. It's completely true about Krishna. The different parties of gopis, they have different opinions. Some of the cowherd boys, they like to joke with Krishna and insult him, and some of the cowherd boys are more quiet. Or what to speak of among the different rasas. There's explanation in the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu how one of Krishna's servants, he's standing there when Krishna's joking with the cowherd boys, and he finds himself starting to laugh, and then he stops. No, no, I can't be so familiar with Krishna. He doesn't like it. Or one of my favorite is when Gopukumar goes to Vaikuntha, and he sees Lord Vishnu, and he runs up to him, Gopal, Gopal! Which means what? Cowherd. So we may not think this way quite in New York, but in, in 2019, but I suppose we, we maybe call people hicks, right? Country bumpkins, rednecks. Something can have some equivalency like that, that we New Yorkers were very sophisticated city people, right? I mean, I was brought up here in New York City. And definitely we had that mood, you know, that the people who live in Kansas, country bumpkins, they don't know anything. Mississippi, you know, we're the sophisticated cosmopolitan people. So Vaikuntha is the ultimate expression of city life and opulence grandeur cowherd boy the supreme most opulent most glorious most majestic most godly cowherd uneducated ignorant village boy right in India right they say village boy so some of the residents of Vaikuntha they they thought this was an insult you can't call the Lord of Vaikuntha cowherd. What are you doing? They said, yes, yes, yes. To kill the demons, sometimes he takes on a cowherding form. But you can't call him that. And the other residents of Vaikuntha, they say, you can call the Lord by any of his names in any of his incarnations. And they had a debate, which made me very happy. Well, I used to be in the debating team, so I was like, Oh, good, when I go to the spiritual world, I can still debate. <laughs> so 
So they're having this debate. Can you call the Lord of Vaikuntha cowherd or not? And you'll all be very happy to know that the Gopal team won the debate. But my point is there were differences of opinion. And they're all residents of Vaikuntha. And these were residents of Vaikuntha who were in the intimate personal association of the Lord. They were in his retinue. And they also said to Gopal Kumar, who came there in a spiritual body, but dressed as a cowherd boy, they said, you know, why don't you take a Vaikuntha form? Why are you dressed like this? So they had an opinion about how we should dress. This controversy about how we should dress goes on in Vaikuntha. <laughs> and when Gopal Kumar went to Dwarka also, and I owed you. I said, what are you wearing? It's not appropriate. So there's different opinions. And even in Vrindavan, there's different opinions. And there's different tastes. You know, there's the this six seasonal forest. There's the spring forest and the winter forest and the dewy season forest. And then there's one forest where all the seasons are together. So the animals and the plants that live in the spring season forest, they like that. They don't like the winter season forest, the spring season forest. There's different flora and fauna in each of those forests. And some residents in Vrindavan, they're living in the village. And when Krishna goes into the forest, they're just crying. Krishna's going into the forest. They don't go into the forest themselves, not usually. I mean, when Krishna was in Kaliya or but generally they don't go. Especially like Madhya Soda and Andamaraj, their friends. They don't usually go into the forest with Krishna. And then you have the residents of the forest, like the deer, or some of Devi's assistants. They don't usually go into the village. When Krishna leaves the forest to go into the village, they're at the border watching. When will he come back? And sometimes everybody's together, like under Govardhan Hill. But my point is they have the different tastes. And we want to serve Krishna in the forest. We want to serve Krishna in the village. We want to serve Krishna in the winter forest. We want to serve Krishna in the summer forest. We want to serve Krishna by joking and wrestling. Or we want to serve him by massaging his feet. And they even sometimes think, what are you doing? Don't you know how to serve? Why are you insulting Krishna like that? So these things are, are not easy to understand. Therefore, of course, we have guru and we have sadhus. So guru and sadhus are our help. We see how did the sadhus apply non-contextual truth in contextual situations? How did they do it? And especially we want to look at sadhus who are contemporary. I mean, I remember when I was re- reading the Bhagavatam, first time I read the Bhagavatam and I was mostly thinking, well, how do I apply this? You know, I, I don't fly around the universe in airplanes. And, you know, how do I relate to it? And when Prabhupada started translating Chaitanya Charitamrita, I was like, oh, okay, I, I can deal with this a little bit more. I felt like I was reading a Sankirtan newsletter. <coughs> of course, even then, it was a different culture and a different time. So the fact that we need guru and sadhu speaks to the fact that we need a living parampara. It's one of the many reasons why having a Ritvik philosophy is very dangerous. 
We need people who are in our time and in our place. Who are fully God conscious, fully self realized persons. We need such people. Because the time and place is always changing. The way society is now, the way it was 30 years ago. I mean, human biology and psychology is the same, but the way society's structure is quite different. So we go for guidance like that, of course, with the Lord in our heart, but primarily with guru and sadhus. How do we apply? And knowing that we're not going to get the same advice from all of the sadhus. That's not possible. And the main thing that we always look for are, are the non-contextual truths present here? People always ask me, how do you know you're pleasing Krishna? And I say, well, it's got to be within Guru Sadhu Shastra. It can't be outside of that. But that's pretty broad. But objectively, it has to be within Guru Sadhu Shastra. And subjectively, I like to turn to Raja Vidya Raja Guyam Pavitram Idamitam Prachakcha Vagamam Dharmam Susukam Kartamam. Raja Vidya. When you act in that way, are you filled with knowledge? Raja Guyam, do you understand the essence of things? Pavitram, do you feel purified? Are you filled with anger and lust and greed and anxiety? Or do you feel purified and free of attachment? Prachaccha, it's directly experienced. We should have a direct experience. Prabhupada talked about this all the time. That you don't need a certificate from others to know if you're advancing, just like you don't need a certificate from others as to whether or not you've eaten. I don't need to ask somebody else, did I eat enough? I mean, unless we have some sort of disease. Agamam dharmyam, it's authentic. And I always give the example, you can tell the difference between the, you know, juicy juice, chemically flavored, chemically colored, 1% fruit juice thing, and picking that tree-ripened, organically grown, locally grown fruit off the tree and eating. You can tell the difference when something's authentic. Dharma. Susukam. One becomes very joyful. If we're acting according to non-contextual truth, we will be joyful. That doesn't mean there's not a variety of experience, of emotion and rasa, but the essential principle is joy. So this is our subjective experience. We have objective and subjective. Then our last category is things that are not non-contextual truths, nor are they contextual application of non-contextual truths. They're mundane dharma. And they only have relevance in the material world as a support system for finding eternal truth. And that's what's being referred to here, where Bhishma has to greet his guests from all over the universe, but he's lying on a bed of arrows. Prabhupada says he's not home, and nor is he in a fit physical condition. You know, I'm, I'm always traveling, and I often have guests visit me in whatever room I'm staying in, but it's very frequent that I only have one chair. You know, I have no place to receive a guest. Sometimes I only have one cup. You know, sometimes I have no way of offering a guest water. Somebody just shows up at my door and I have one cup that I've been drinking from and I have the one chair that I'm sitting in. How do I receive them? What do I do? I can't go through the standard 
procedure of etiquette and hospitality. I certainly can't cook for them. You know, I'd have to have one of Draupadi's pots or something. So the Dharma, according to are you a Brahmin, Satriya, Vaishya, Shudra, are you a student, you know, are you, do you work in the realm of ideas, do you work in the realm of government, do you work in the realm of resources, do you work in the realm of artistry? Are you a young person studying, do you have a family, are you retiring from the world, are you preparing for death? What's the proper way to, to greet people and all these things, that's, that's not even contextual application of eternal truth. It's something completely external, which is very different in different places. Even though Krishna says, that Krishna's created these different realms of occupational work, the realm of ideas, government, resources, and artistry. In the beginning of Satya Yuga, they're not existing. Everybody's hamsa. Nobody has to work. The fruit just grows from the trees. The jewels just pop out of the ground. The weather's always nice. Nobody needs a livelihood. Then there's no system of government. That comes later. Priyavrata, Prithu, they established towns and villages and national borders and government. But that didn't exist. So there's a time on this earth planet that that doesn't exist. So these things are the least important. They're important in that they're supportive and they're helpful. But they're they're not even an application of eternal truth. They are, however, a way that we can bring eternal truth into the world. These Dharma principles are not themselves application of eternal truth. But they are a means by which we can take non-contextual truth and take it out into the world. If I act in my occupation to please Krishna and I act in my occupation to treat others as I'd like to be treated, then I am taking those principles and bringing it into my work, which then becomes spiritualized. If I bring those principles into my relationship with my parents, my spouse, my children, even though those are all just upadis, they then become transcendentalized. But those things are radically different at different times. I mean, just radically different. Like, how does one define marriage? At what age should people get married? I mean, I think Prabhupada talked about how his sister had a baby when she was 12. I mean, today that would not only be illegal, but it would be considered abusive. It would be considered criminal, not just technically by the law, but most of us would consider that to be really evil. But in those days, it was normal. Not only in those days was it normal, it was considered to be pious. So we have something that was considered not that long ago. What are we talking, 100 years ago, 120 years ago? It's not that long ago where certain behavior was very common in society, not only in India, it was common in Europe, it was common in America. Girls in America 150 years ago were marrying at 12, 13, 14 years of age. So these sort of behaviors, what's understood to be pious, what's understood to be sinful, change radically and and very quickly. 
Yes? And to be attached to those sort of things in the name of religious principles is not very intelligent. Because those kinds of things are constantly, constantly shifting. So this is one of the 14 items of knowledge, is to be able to discriminate according to time, place, and circumstance. Bhishma, as one of the Mahajanas, was able to do that. And when we're making decisions for our own personal life, when we're making decisions about how to preach Krishna consciousness, we should always keep intact, without compromise, those things which are always true, without compromise, for everyone, in all places, and at all times. We should learn how to adapt those things and how to present those things according to the time and place. And we should be very flexible with things that are not in either of those categories, but that are simply a matter of the particular changing circumstances that we are in. So I hope that this was helpful. This is a very deep subject, which we could talk about probably for a few thousand years until the time, place, and circumstance was totally different. Uh, But if there's any questions or comments or... Yes, please. I could, I have a couple of questions. Yeah. I'll, I'll start with what you just spoke about, which has to do with morality. Mm. Because you, you gave an example of something that today we would consider to be immoral. Yes. Unethical. Immoral, yes. Which was accepted. In a <coughs> Not only time. accepted, it was considered highly moral and ethical. Now, the study of ethics and morality is quite extensive. Yes. There are different theories of ethics and morality. And there is what there's a school, of utilitarian school. Mm. There are various, various kinds of, of approaches to the, the question of what is ethical. Yes. And one of those is is based on there are universal laws. There there are absolute laws that govern what is ethical and then there is on the other side that there's nothing absolute mm-hmm. and it's all utilitarian. So you spoke about uh, non contextual truth in the in the sphere of well the, the examples that you gave were all in relationship to you gave the, the, the Das Mula Tattva thing. But in the realm of ethics and morality, is there any what is our outlook? Is there anything that is absolute or is it all time? That's a really interesting question. Or? I mean there's there's a non-Shastric empirical research that at this present time and as far as we, in recent human history that there are five universal ethical and moral principles. Purity, authority, fairness, uh, community, and harm. And purity means that some things, there's a sense of what's pure and what's impure. And you can see that there's some biological basis for that. If you eat or contact impure things, you become sick. Now, of course, how is purity and impurity defined varies considerably from one culture and one time and place to another. But some principle that purity is good and impurity is bad. Then authority also seems to have a biological basis. The concept 
that there should be some respect for authority. This seems to have a basis in the fact that all of us are produced from parents and that if we don't have special respect for our parents, we're probably going to die or get very hurt as a young child. Now, this shows up in many societies that, for example, the penalty for killing a police officer is much higher than the penalty for killing an ordinary citizen. But again, who is an authority? How you respect an authority seems to be very varied. Then the concept of fairness, I always thought the concept of fairness didn't have a biological basis, but there's a, a lot of experiments being done with animals, and at least like the primates seem to have a sense of fairness. It's, it's quite interesting. You can look up uh, how they reward different... Anyway, I don't have time to get into it now. But there does seem to be some innate sense that fairness is good and unfairness is bad. Now, again, what does it mean to be fair? I don't then community, this is the idea of loyalty. So, again, as at least for humans, as social creatures, we find it very difficult to live without a community just to maintain our physical body without a community is extremely difficult for us. I mean, some people have done it, but it's, it's not easy. And we function best when there's some sort of a community. So there seems to be, again, at least among herd animals like ourselves and social creatures like ourselves, some sort of biological basis for the idea of community and loyalty. Again, what does that mean? How does that play out? Does that mean you're in Nazi Germany and you swear allegiance to Hitler? You know, what, how, how does that manifest. And then harm, this is of course the golden rule, that you don't do harm to others. That if you have a society where people are harming others, everybody gets harmed. But this is according to empirical research. I mean, if we're going to look, if we're going to look at Shastra, we seem to see things about being beneficial, about love, about connection, you know, seeing all living entities as spiritual sparks. So even in this Dasmula Tattva, we have the basis for universal morals and ethics in that way, doing what's beneficial. So we, we do have that. But as far as details, I mean, it's so widely different at different times and places. The application of these universal truths is so different that, it, it, again, it's diametrically opposed. I'm, I'm, but on this particular question because the, the Western position is that that civilization, you could, the, the, what we call civilization, has is progressing from, you could say, very uh, crude ethical mm. principles to more refined and so that it's not just, oh, that was then, and so that was accepted then. But we're saying just the opposite. But, and then you, you look and you analyze, you say, well, like you just gave one example, that, uh, okay, in the past, there's so many, I mean, child marriage, okay, that's one, what about slavery? What about, uh, you know, all, all kinds of brutal behavior that was acceptable in... But I'm not even talking about things that were acceptable, like the idea of getting people married very young was considered a moral and ethical principle to avoid illicit sex in society. So it wasn't just something that was tolerated as, you know, a necessary evil as, say, slavery or prostitution would be. But we're talking about something that was 
actually seen as the most moral and most ethical choice. And today it's not. Today it's seen as a very immoral choice. So What's it's... Changed? Well, first of all, the society has changed so that if people get married very young, they wouldn't be taken care of by their family and their community and their society anymore. They'd be off on their own. You know, they wouldn't be part of a, of a structure. And what's also changed, quite frankly, is the introduction, the introduction of birth control and abortion that separated sex from procreation and no longer induced people to marry at a young age. So you have the, at least those two things that have changed. And therefore, the moral principle has changed. What's considered to be moral principle has changed to the point that it's even being put into law. Uh, but something very interesting, I forget who I was talking to, they were telling me how they were studying about the presence of the United States, and I think it was Hamilton, was it Hamilton who was killed in a duel? Anyway, there was some, some president who was killed in a duel, and with another member of government. Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr and... Harrison? Harrison? Hamilton? Anyway... I don't remember. But it was, and that was legal. It was legal to settle a dispute with a duel. Imagine that. And nobody was charged with a crime. These were top government officials. You know, you were talking about, let, let's bring the fight outside. But I, I just, just imagine, if, that's, if you could settle a difference by going out in the alley and, and taking out a gun and having a duel. Nobody was charged with a crime. It wasn't criminal. It was a bona fide, legal, legitimate way of settling differences. So, you know, concepts of what's right and what's wrong. Now, I would say we would much rather have a duel than a war. That was the situation with Jara Sundar, right? When... He was the only one who hadn't accepted Yudhisthira as the emperor. And so by some little subterfuge, they challenged him to a duel. He had, you know, Jarasandha and Bhima, and that way he didn't have... I mean, previously Jarasandha had attacked with these big armies. But by having a duel between these two people, they avoided mass bloodshed. So on one hand, you could say, oh, that's terrible, people can just go out in the street and shoot each other and nobody's charged with a crime. But on the other hand, they were avoiding mass casualties. Imagine Trump and Kim Jong-un going to have a duel. So it's, you know, sometimes also we, we need to look, what was the context? What were they trying to achieve? But anyway, these things vary widely. And if, if we, as members of ISKCON, if we think that we're going to just kind of pick up... I was in a temple once where the temple president tried to do this. But we're just going to kind of pick up the external technical behaviors of people from 150 years ago or 200 or 5,000 years ago. You know, you're going to have battles at weddings. Can you imagine that? I mean, it was just Normal. Balaram just hits him over the head and kills him and the wedding goes on. Mm-hmm. I, it, was just, it was just, oh yeah, Prabhupada says this happened at Satya's wedding. <laughs> you know? 
ride away on the chariot and the other guys are following and you're shooting them. These were the government. This was the government people doing this. You know, it was their kind of exciting weddings. So if we're, if we're just going to try to pick up these sort of behaviors and transplant them into 2019, you know, we would be doing a big disservice. And it would be com- a complete distraction from our goal of preaching Krishna consciousness. Because these things have nothing to do at all. They're, they're all indirect kind of things. They're, they're, they're not even contextual applications. So we should be very careful to distinguish between these. Yes? Thank you so much, Pastor, for the class. Um, in regards to personality and identity, mm. we were discussing a lot about likes and dislikes. Yes. Um, my question is, how do we understand what part of our identity is just our false ego? Or what is our actual soul? Because there's so many things I know about myself and my likes and dislikes, but I feel like it would be dangerous to put a lot of... to think that that's who my eternal soul really is. Oh, such a, this is such a wonderful question. I'm so glad you brought this up. We did the last one because it's already 9.01. So it's interesting that Krishna also cares about our false ego nature in this life. Because it is what it is, what it is, what it is, what it is. You, you know, you can try to become a lizard now. There are people who, you know, get green tattoos all over their bodies. and There are people who do actually file their teeth, try to look like an animal in this body. But basically, whatever we have in this body, it also has some meaning. So, although it's ultimately false it's very temporary it's not me it's what I have now it's like yesterday I went into Manhattan in the subway I'm sure I could have also taken a car I could have taken a bicycle I could have walked I could have gone on a skateboard right maybe I could have gone in a helicopter and that matters how I, be, how I behave in the subway I can stand up holding on to something I can't do that in a car so to know what kind of vehicle do I have is also important, and Krishna talks about this. He says you have to act according to your nature. He says don't imitate somebody else's nature. So your choices is use your nature for me or for Maya. So we should have some respect for our particular psychology and physiology and nature and taste in our conditioned state. If we reject those all as maya, how are we going to act? As a nothing? You know, there are devotees who acted as avadutas outside society, going naked, not talking to anybody. But that's... We're not recommended to do that. And we're not all trying to be nagababas or something. So, yeah, we have a conditioned nature. And that conditioned nature is what plays into these decisions, should I marry or not? Who should I marry? Marry someone compatible. Prabhupada says a big reason for divorce is that people don't look at compatibility. You know, and we've seen that. Oh, they're a devotee, they're a devotee. Oh, it doesn't matter. But it does matter. Krishna says, you know, one should be equal in renunciation. And you've seen, you know, one, one person wants to have a 
fancy house and you know he says to his wife I want you to have 40 saris she's like why <laughs> two is fine I'll wash one and wear one you know there, there's different natures we need people who want to make a lot of money for Krishna and other people like money's mine So who you marry, what kind of occupation you have is all nature. Do you you like to play with ideas or with managing people in government or with generating wealth or with artistry and building all the art and function in society? What do you like to do? And if you try to do someone else's nature, you'll be miserable and you'll cause such a disturbance. And I was in a temple recently so you know, I'm sitting down. And I start the I start, right before I started the class. I asked everybody to move up. A lot of people, small room. So ten minutes into the class, this this devotee lady comes in, and in a very loud voice, "Everybody move up!" What do you, you know? <laughs> so I just stopped speaking, and after about five minutes, said, are, "Are you done?" And I went up to her later. I said, "You know, you need something to manage. You need to be in charge of something." Because she wasn't managing anything, she comes and manages inappropriately. <laughs> right? So that's important. That's not not important. And you're allowed in this life and in this body to like utma or not. To like cake or not. To like mangdal or not. That, that's okay. It doesn't have to be, well... It's just because of what my mother served me when I was a child and I should get rid of... No, it's all right. It's okay. Rabbi says we should perform devotional service according to our taste. He said some people are just are going to want to worship the deity. Some people are going to want to do kirtan. Some people are going to want to edit books. I mean, we have different tastes even in service. As far as your eternal, our eternal personality, that gets revealed as we chant our Krishna as we chant Hare Krishna, as we serve, as we read the books, that starts to manifest. And that may be entirely different. Some people who are now males may be gopis. Some people who are now females may be coward boys. Some of us may be peacocks. I don't know. Maybe somebody here is one of the deer standing on the edge of the forest. Why is Krishna going back to the village? That will manifest. And that may have nothing to do with the particular personality we have in this life. May be completely different. This life, we may be very shy. In our eternal spiritual form, we may be very argumentative. That's. This is a, a costume. It's a drama that we're doing. So gradually, our personality gets revealed. But even in the drama we're doing, play the drama nicely for Krishna. Don't play somebody else's role. You know, when, when I used to in the 55th Street Temple, I used to be in the Ramayana. And I would play Shirpanika. So you don't play Shirpanika like you play Sita. It would be a disturbance. Loka Mangala used to say, Ermila, stop being such a nice demon. Mm-hmm. Saying, you've really got to be a demon. So I would stand behind the stage waiting for Mike to come on stage and I would say, so much wealth do I have today and I will gain more according to my schemes. He is my enemy and I have killed him. And, and I would try to get into the demoniac mentality. Because if I didn't do that when I went on stage, it was just like, 
And I would like to unite with you, O best of men. Would you be my husband? And it didn't work. That was one of my lines. It just didn't, it just didn't work. So whatever role we have in this world, in Mahaprabhu's movement, do it expertly. Daksha is one of the qualities of a devotee. Do it expertly. That means you've got to know. What kind of vehicle? Do I have a car? Do I have a bicycle? Do I have a... What do I have? What do, I have? do I have a boat? Do I have a helicopter? Is one of the wings broken? You know, what? How, how do I work? Is that all right? And the main way we're acting according to our eternal personality is I'm a servant of Krishna. My real business is not to please my husband, my wife, my mother, my father, my sister, my brother. My real business is to please Guru and Krishna. And everything I do should be to please them in that identity. And in that way, even before we know whether we're a cowherd boy or a peacock, we still can act according to that ultimate spiritual identity which is this is a role, it's a drama, it's a game. I do it expertly, but for Krishna's pleasure, that Krishna's in the audience. Like I, I sat right behind Prabhupada in the audience in 55th Street when he was watching Ramayana. You know, Krishna's in the audience, Prabhupada's in the audience. You know, they're seeing, are they pleased with how I'm doing this drama? That mentality is one's eternal identity. Is that all right? And I should stop now so we can all take prasadam. Thank you very much. Shiva Prabhupada Ki. Oops.